0: you're listening to the creating a brand podcast i'm your host alex sanfilippo today we're going to be talking about unleashing the world's most powerful marketing force for your brand and guess what if you do it right you shouldn't have to be paying them they'll actually be paying you Today's guest is David Meerman Scott. David is most known for his international best-selling book, The New Rules of Marketing and PR. David also speaks alongside Tony Robbins at Business Mastery Events. But today, we're talking about fandom. David and his daughter, Raiko recently published a book titled Fanocracy. They teamed up to explore this big question, why do some brands, even in supposedly boring categories like car insurance and enterprise software, attract not just customers, but raving fans? The key is creating what they call a fanocracy. I know that you're really gonna enjoy this insightful episode, so here is my interview with David Meerman Scott. David, thank you so much for being a guest on the Creating a Brand podcast. Alex, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. It goes back to a book that I believe you wrote in 2007, which was The New Rules for Marketing and PR, which was an international bestseller and a very pivotal book that I believe kind of shaped where we are today with social media, PR and marketing. Really a great book. So I've been following you for a long time. Really enjoyed that one. I want to mention kind of starting off here, your new book, fanocracy is very different than your last book. Can you explain (laughs) what kind of encouraged you to write this book? Yeah, it is pretty different. Yeah,
1: you're right. New Rules Rules of Marketing and PR came out originally in 2007. And it's now in the sixth edition, and it's in 29 languages. So it's, it's done a lot since it originally came out. And that book really was focusing on how marketing is on the web about creating content rather than um, trying to advertise, if I can boil it down to one sentence, a new way of generating Mm -hmm. attention. And as I was thinking over the last five years or so about what's going on in the world, I recognized that we're increasingly living in digital chaos. There's... So much going on in the online world that's changed in the last decade. Um, Companies are doubling down trying to interrupt you using online channels. Um, The whole political world has become incredibly polarized online. And the social networks um, feed into that polarization because they're only showing your news feed the things that you want to see as well as the things that they want to sell you. Um, and you don't even know sometimes you're talking to a robot. So I felt as if the pendulum has swung too far into the direction of superficial online communications. And maybe, you know, all those people who read the New Rules of Marketing and PR, some of those people are abusing that channel, unfortunately. And at the same time, people are hungry for a true human connection. So I've been thinking myself, the human connection that's been the most important thing for me in my life has been around the people that I've been together a fan of something with. So I'm a massive live music fan. I've been to 780 live music shows, including 75 Grateful Dead concerts. And the the people that I go to live music shows are among my best friends. And, that's really powerful. And I was talking to my daughter, Rako. She's 26. This was We started talking five years ago when she was 21. And she's, yeah, you know, I'm so into Harry Potter. I've read every single book. I've watched every movie multiple times. I've been to the Wizarding World of, of Harry Potter down in Orlando, Florida a couple of times. She even went to the UK to go to the, the studio tour And she said, I am so into Harry Potter that I just finished a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series um, that I put onto a fan fiction site. And it's been downloaded thousands of times and commented on hundreds of times. So we agreed that we are so passionate about these things and we wanted to explore that together. So we co wrote this new book, which is called Fanocracy. We co wrote it because we both are very different, but at the same time, we had the same ideas around fandom and how the world has become cold in the digital world, but the fandom is the warm thing that we gravitate to.
0: I love it. I, I'm looking at the cover of the book right now. Fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans. And I, I like that you both wrote this together. We were talking offline. I thought it was really interesting that you two were able to uh, kind of go chapter by chapter. You would do one, she would do the next one. And it, was, it felt very uh, seamless. Like it was great. You guys did a really good job with that. I've seen some, some co-authors write books together and you can really, uh, the synergy isn't quite there, but I can tell yeah. you all really you guys have the same idea about this and some very different experiences. And I think one of my favorite parts about this book that I hope we get into a little bit was the, the stories that you all shared. You had such diverse stories. It really gave you the picture of what you were trying to explain in each chapter. I think that's what really stuck out to me. And before we get into that, can you explain what a, what a fanocracy is? What does that mean to you? Sure. Uh, and,
1: and thank you, Alex, very much for, for saying that you, that you enjoyed it. I, it, it really does mean a lot to me. Um, you know, one of the reasons I was working with Reiko on this is because she's a millennial woman and I'm a middle-aged white guy. <laughs> so we need, right. we we needed to have two different those those voices to come together. And and originally we wrote the the book in one unified voice and it wasn't working. Um and it wasn't until we decided to To swap chapters back and forth, as you just mentioned, that it really, the book really came together because her voice is so different than my voice. Mm -hmm. Yet, yet, as you mentioned, we have the same idea. So we see a fanocracy as um, an organization that inspires incredible passion for a brand or an idea. Um, by putting the customer's needs ahead of everything else. It's the idea of a true human connection. We came up with the word fanocracy, um, and we own the URL www.fanocracy.com because we wanted to come up with a word that really describes the rule of fans. In other words, a democracy is the rule of the many. A meritocracy is the rule of the most... um, Worthy And and a fanocracy is the rule of fans. And we found so many different places where when organizations allow their fans to take over and allow their fans to rule that the organization behind it ends up being so successful.
0: I love that fanocracy, the rule of fans. I think that's a really (laughs) cool way to describe it. I like that a lot. So, I want to get into your book a little bit here. Now, we're not going to have time to cover all of it. You guys do have nine different steps and chapters that are kind of covering really what fanocracy means and how you've defined it. Again, we're not going to get to all of it, but there's three chapters I pulled out that I'd love to focus on over yeah, the next of few minutes here. Uh, first of which is chapter four to get closer than usual. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that means.
1: Of course. So, we recognize that, um, that the idea of a fanocracy is when people are having true human connections when they're engaged fan to fan or Uh, organization to fan. That's really, really powerful stuff. And we wanted to dig into the neuroscience aspect of it. So we interviewed a bunch of different neuroscientists to understand what's going on in our brains when we are together with like-minded people. Like when I'm at a Grateful Dead concert or Ray goes with her friends at Harry Potter or whatever you're into, you know, Mm -hmm. you're you're into snowboarding or you're into birdwatching or you're into whatever it might be. And it turns out that one neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall identified different degrees of proximity from one human to another human. And he identified four different degrees. The fur- The furthest away is 20 feet or further, which he called public space. Public space, our brains don't really track the people in public space. We might be aware that there's people that are 20 feet away from us, but we don't begin to worry about them. But our ancient brains kick in. Um, It's a survival mechanism. It's hardwired into our brains when someone gets within about 20 feet of us because we want to know, are those people friends or foes? Do we need to kick in our fight or flight mechanism? And this is hardwired into us. And within 20 feet to about four feet is called social space. And then personal space is inside of about four feet. That's sort of cocktail party distance. It turns out that the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the shared connection, the more powerful the shared emotions. So that if you're with like-minded people, um, if you're at, for example, a company's client conference, where everyone in there is part of the same tribe, or at a Grateful Dead concert, everyone's part of the same tribe, um, or at um, a a rally of people um, who love a particular brand of car, those are people of a particular similar tribe, you feel comfortable and you have very positive, strong human emotions, positive emotions with those other people that you meet, even if you've never met them before because you're part of the same tribe. But if you are on a crowded elevator or in a crowded street, you feel wary because you don't know if there's potential danger among those other people that you're coming in close proximity with. So what that means is all of us can figure out ways to get in close physical proximity with other people in order to create genuine human connections with them. And that's a very powerful way to grow fans. But there's one more step, which is really interesting, another neuroscience aspect, and that's a concept called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are the parts of our brains that fire when we see someone do something as if we're doing it ourselves. And so this is this explains why when you're watching a sad movie, you feel sad. You're watching a suspenseful movie, your heart starts to beat, you start to sweat. Um, it also explains why you feel you you know personally a movie star. You don't know that movie star, but your brain is telling you that you're in close physical proximity of that movie star when you see them on a screen through this concept of mirror neurons. Now, what this means for all of us is the more we use video or photographs when we communicate with people in business or personal life, um, the more powerful the emotions because people feel as if you're actually in close physical proximity with them, even if it's just a humble photograph. So that explains the selfie phenomenon, because a selfie by definition, if you look in the camera, you take the picture from about four feet away. That's how far long our arms are, three to four feet Um that's incredibly powerful. And so it this is hardwired into us. It's neuroscience. And um and I, I found this so fascinating. Me too. Um that it actually becomes a prescription. So what it means for companies is put photographs on your website, put videos on your website, not stock photos, but real
0: photos of people. The stock photos. It can't be the same picture that people just saw on the last 10 websites, right? It's got to be- Right, right. And
1: everyone can see through those stock model photographs. But if you're using real images of real people, of your customers, of your employees, of you, it also means that if you're on your own, you're starting to start a business- Um, or your LinkedIn profile, or your Instagram feed, um, whatever it might be, the more images of you personally cropped as if you're within about four feet, which is cocktail party distance, the better. And furthermore, showing yourself doing the things that you're passionate about. In other words, not Sticking just to business when you're doing business, but showing people what you're passionate about using images, that can be
0: really powerful stuff. I couldn't agree more. You know, this was the part of the book that really stood out to me as like something I learned about science. You know, it was something that really just was like it kind of like a light bulb went off my head. I never really thought about it, but the more, you know, I started to actually be conscious of this and think about it, and I was actually in conversation with people, I realized this research is right. It, it makes sense. And I think a lot of us, we have to convert that in-person feeling to an online presence. We have to be able to get those photos, like you're saying, of us Closer, you know, not super far away or anything like that, because it gives a different persona off. It gives people a different feel when they look at it. This part of the book was really insightful for me. It was something that I had not thought about before. And I've been really pondering how to incorporate this since reading it. So I was really excited about that part. And that's the reason I wanted to get into that with you. Yeah,
1: thanks. I actually had somebody reach out to me a couple weeks ago. She's a really well-known author. And she had an opportunity like you to read an early copy of the book. Mm-hmm. And she said, David, you know, David, I've got a pretty popular Instagram. I never really posted any photographs of me close cropped. She writes novels, most of them are based in Europe. So she does a lot of photographs of Europe. But she said, I recently just took out my camera, looked at it, shot a selfie, popped it onto my Instagram. And within an hour, it was the most popular Instagram photo I'd ever ever posted. And she said, I can't believe just by reading what you said in this one chapter in the book, I had the most engagement I've ever had on my Instagram. And oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Um, And it's something that people don't really think about. But the reason it's so interesting is because it's hardwired into us. It's part of our ancient brain. It's a survival mm-hmm. technique. It's, it's genuine human connection and the excitement that we have when um, we trust somebody who is close to us. That's one of the most powerful human connections that we can ever have.
0: Creating a brand just launched something new for you. We released 15 online courses on our website, six of which are free and require no registration. Our courses cover a wide range of topics from blogging to podcasting, winning at networking, personal development, and so much more. Ultimately, each course is designed to help you succeed while saving you time and money. I want to challenge you to enroll in one of these courses today. Please visit creatingabrand.com courses to get started. In addition, if you enroll in one of our premium courses, you'll receive free access to all current and future courses, plus a membership to the Creating a Brand community where you can connect directly with me and with other entrepreneurs. If you're ready to take the next step in your life or in business, please visit creatingabrand.com courses and enroll today. moving on here to chapter six, give more than you have to. What does that mean?
1: So give more than you have to. Originally, I started thinking about this idea more than a decade ago, because as I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite bands is the Grateful Dead. Um, And the Grateful Dead starting 40 years ago, started to do something that no other band did. And that is they allowed their fans to record their concerts. And, Mm By allowing their fans to record their concerts, they actually encouraged people, if you wanted to, to bring in professional-level recording gear into the venue, and they had power strips for you, and you could set up your uh, microphones right behind the mixing board. Every other band said no. Every other band is still saying no, but the Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? They were giving the gift of allowing people to record the concerts, and this then created a social network before Mark Zuckerberg was even born, where initially people were trading cassette tapes of the music, and now it's MP3 files, mm-hmm. and it exposed tons of people, including me, to the band for the first time through these um, fan-generated tapes. Wow! And so I thought about that idea, and I thought, you know, that's true of, of that can be true of any of us. The more we give, the more that has potential to come back to us. And um, it's actually is another neuroscience concept, because when you're given a gift without any expectation of anything in return, you feel an obligation to the person that gave you that gift. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, so many companies don't do that especially B2B companies, by the way, what they do is online, for example, they offer something like a white paper, but it's not truly free. What they do is they offer the white paper only in exchange for an email address. And that's not free. Um, So they're not giving a gift without an expectation of something in return. They're actually setting up an adversarial relationship with someone who could potentially become a fan by saying, no, you can't read our white paper unless you first give us something. And the right. thing the thing you have to give us is your email address. So what we recognized and what we wrote about in this chapter is the more things that you can figure out how to give away for free, give to give more than you have to, the more opportunity you have to have people feel compelled to then want to return that favor to you. And and I think it actually does come back that people say, oh, I remember this company. They gave me this thing Then I, you know, if I need that particular product, I'll go back to them. But also, you know, this may sound a little bit woo woo, but I also uh, uh, sort of believe in the idea of karma that the more you give, the more the universe gives back. And just in my own life, I have something that I do—a little ritual. Every night that I'm in a hotel, I leave a five-dollar bill on the bed. Um, and so I travel a lot. I do like a hundred room nights a year. So I'm leaving a lot of five-dollar bills around. And um, and you know, I, I I believe just by giving a five dollars to the person who cleaned my room every night is a gift that I'm giving to the universe that the universe will give back to me at some point. Um, And I've had wonderful handwritten notes from um, the housekeepers. um, And that's not why I do it. I do it because I just want to give a gift without any expectation of anything in return.
0: I love that. And I think that a lot of websites, like you're saying, and people's companies, we're getting it wrong. The idea is. I'll give you something for free if you enter my sales funnel. It's kind of right. the mindset, right? Right, which is not free. That's right, exactly. the
1: opposite of free. It's demanding something first. That's mm-hmm. like that's like if you're if you're in a bar and you find somebody attractive and you think you might want to ask them out on a date. You you go to, you go up to them. You say, uh, "You're really cute. I might ask you out, but first you have to tell me how much money you make." Right. It's the same thing. It's like, here, I've got a white paper I want to give you, but I'm not going to give it to you until you fill out this form first.
0: Right. Now, if somebody's saying, okay, well, I want to give something away, but I also want to earn business. how How have you seen that work for them? So the
1: real simple concept here is that you give something away for free, but then you have opportunities for people to then you know, as you, the term you used, enter their funnel or have opportunities for them um, to make it easy for them to then engage with you. So a simple concept is you make the initial white paper for free, but then inside of the white paper, you have an offer. So the initial white paper, no obligation at all, no no requirement to fill out an email form, nothing at all like that. But then when someone does read your white paper, inside of the white paper, it says, hey, if you found this interesting... Um, why not subscribe to our email newsletter? Why not subscribe to our podcast? Why not um, check out our webinars and see if there's one that you want to participate in? Um, and so that's a non-coercive way to get them into the funnel. Um, the Grateful Dead was, you know, you listen to these, this music and a certain percent of the people will want to buy a concert ticket. Um, and so that's how it ends up coming back to you in a, in a human way as opposed to a coercion way.
0: I, I love this point. Chapter six again, give more than you have to. I think that you're really onto something there. And I'm, I'm hoping the light bulb just went off for a lot of people on how to really convert their their companies and their websites to have these truly free giveaways and gifts for people. So thank you for that point. Yeah, That's of course. a great chapter there. Now jumping down to chapter nine, break down barriers. This is one I really enjoyed. Can you explain that to us?
1: So the idea of breakdown barriers is that how can you let your customers or even potential customers in to your inner world in a way that shows them something um, that's unexpected and turns them into fans. So we've got a couple of really cool examples. I want to share two two of them quickly with you uh, about this concept. The first one um, is a restaurant that Um, My co-author Rako and my wife, her mother visited um, and they have, um, you know, typical restaurant, a bunch of of regular tables, but they have one table they call the chef's table and it's actually inside the kitchen. And so you can book the chef's table and you can eat your meal at the table that's literally in the kitchen, and the and the the, chef. the chefs are you know running around, and you can see them doing their work. You can smell the work that they're doing. Every once in a while, they'll come over and they'll tell you what they're up to, um, and you'll see, you can actually see your own food being prepared. It's it, it's a remarkable experience. So they've broken down the barrier. The barrier being that there's always sort of a you know, a wall between you and the kitchen and, and, you know, you might see a glimpse of it, but you're not given the opportunity to actually sit there and that's where your table is. Um, and another example is I I'm, I'm a surfer. I love to surf. I'm not very good at it, (laughs) but I, but I love, but I love to do it. Um, and i'm also a bit of an environmentalist i have um i am a part owner of a 12,000 acre nature reserve in panama and it's very important for protecting the environment and i partly i use that to to way more than offset my 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 carbon footprint it's very important for me to protect the environment so of course um surfboards are not good for the environment because, right. um, you know, the, the the materials, the foam core that they use to make a typical surfboard um, sort of takes a lot to manufacture. And then when the surfboard ends its life, it just rots in a landfill. So I found a company called Grain Surfboards that makes wooden surfboards. It's like, wow, that's really cool. It's hitting all my hot buttons. It's sustainable, it's beautiful. Uh, It's a a wonderful surfboard. Uh, And I was thinking about buying a wooden surfboard when I found grain surfboards. But then when I was digging around their website, I found that you can actually take a four-day build-your-own surfboard course. Like, wow, that cool. is freaking cool. Yeah. And they, they happened to be located in York, Maine. I live in the Boston area, so it was really close by. Well, not really close by, like an hour away from me. So I said, I'm going to sign up for this thing. And I signed up for it. And what was remarkable to me is that grain surfboards has a a proprietary technique for building surfboards that they invented. It's actually a boat building technique that uses ribs inside of the surfboard and then thin wood veneer that goes over the top of the ribs. Mm. And because if it were a solid piece of wood, it would be way too heavy. Um, And so they created a light surfboard with this boat building technique. And what most companies do is they say, no, that's our proprietary technique. You can't understand what we do. It's a trade secret. Grain Surfboard said, sure, come on in. We'll teach you how to make your own board. You'll build it with uh, with us, with the artisans who work at Grain Surfboards. And I loved it. Four days to build my own surfboard. And I loved it so much, I actually went back a second time to make another surfboard. Very cool. And so what they've done is they've broken down the barriers between them in their factory, and and it's not everybody who makes their own because they'll happily sell you a surfboard, but from those the subset of people who wanna build their own, even though they're giving away their trade secret. Um, And so that has built a massive fan base for them. They've got tons of followers on the social networks. There's people like me who are constantly talking up how awesome they are. And then, you know, if when I go into the lineup with my wooden surfboard i'm totally unique you know there, there might be on the beach there might be 100 people who are surfing or waiting to surf or you know surfboards i'm the only person typically with a wooden surfboard for sure and it's a it's a conversation started like wow yeah. that's pretty cool and like i said i made it it's like you made it oh my gosh how'd you make it and it's like this company grain surfboards and you know and and so um it it turns into i turns into a fanocracy for grain surfboards just by breaking down the barriers and letting people see how they do their work.
0: Yeah, now I think there's another barrier that has to be broken down with this part because that gets into a little bit of people's pride of not wanting people to know the, the background of what they've done to create what they've created. And I think many people starting in businesses, they're afraid to show that side of things what do you say to them? I mean, you've got some really good points here, but what do you say if I'm like a scared to kind of share, you know, the the background of what I'm doing, or maybe behind the scenes?
1: I think that all of us have an opportunity to share something about what we do. Um, And you may not want to share everything. I get that, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not gonna, like, you know, necessarily open up your source code. If you're a software company, I get that. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's what you do but the more you peep, you let people peek behind the curtain the more likely you are to find people who um who become fans you know and you know we talked about we talked earlier about how with my daughter Reiko and I who wrote we wrote fanocracy together initially um when we wrote we had one unified voice And we realized it wasn't working. We had to figure out, you know, this isn't working. We need to do something differently. And that's when we decided that we needed to write individual chapters. So I wrote chapter four, she wrote chapter five, and so on. And that's when it really started to work for us. Now, I just shared something I didn't have to share. I broke down the barrier. I shared Mm -hmm. with you that initially when we were writing the book, it wasn't working You know, not everyone would say something like that. And then when we, and that we had a false start and we spent two months doing something, we had to throw away all that work because it wasn't working uh, and redo it. And then it finally was working later. Most people would say, oh yeah, we have a book. We each wrote chapters and we're done. But um, the more you can let people into your inner sanctum and break down the barriers, the, the more potential you have that people will... Will see you as a human. Will want to do business with you.
0: What you just said there, see you as a human. I think that's becoming more important than ever because people are. The internet makes us feel more robotic than ever. Before everything is so polished and so clean, it doesn't even feel human most of the time anymore. I know there's some some brands I've followed for years, and they've just gotten so polished and so. Uh, you know, straight to the point of what they do that you don't feel like there's anything going on with it. And I would love for some of these, these brands that I'm talking about, I'm not gonna say any of their names. Uh I'd love for them to show, hey, we really struggled with this product. You know, this was a tough one to make to bring to you because it makes it feel like you're saying human, like there's some, there's still that interaction from human to human, right? That's exactly right. I'll give you another real
1: quick example, sort of related to what we talked about earlier. And that is, Um, The idea of just simply using real photographs on a website rather than stock photos, because the shiny stock photo um, does not show the humanity, but the photographs of real people, warts and all, does. And so many people are reluctant to do that because they think they need to look perfect.
0: Transparency is key in creating fans because it breaks down barriers. I love that. It's so true. Now, in the final chapter of the book, you and Reiko say that successful people understand that in order to ignite a spark in another, they must first ignite a spark within themselves. I know this is speaking to our inner passion, but how does this relate to marketing and fanocracy?
1: Of course. So my daughter Reiko um, coined a, a, a phrase that I absolutely love and it's passion is infectious. Passion is infectious. And the idea here is that Um, When you're passionate about something, it can be anything. It can be snowboarding, it can be sailing, it can be um, needlepoint, it can be fine art, it can be wine, whatever it is, whatever you're passionate about. When you're passionate about something, that passion is infectious. And so showcasing what it is that you as an individual are passionate about is a really, really powerful way to build fans. So, you know, each of us as an individual has an opportunity to showcase what we're passionate about um, in, in whenever we meet somebody, you know, and I, I, I like when I meet someone for the first time, say at a cocktail party or whatever, say, you know, what do you do? What do you love to do? What are you passionate about? What are you a fan of? And it it solicits really interesting answers. And I do that at, 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 you know, business events, you know, it might be a conference or something. And it's a very different way to get people to open up than saying, what do you do? What business do you work in? And and so on. Um, And I think that when you use social networks, the more you can showcase what you, who you are as a person, what you do on your personal life, not just your, your shiny business life, the, the, the better off you are. And that idea that passion is infectious also becomes a way that you can find the best employees to work at your business. You know, a lot of, a lot of companies look at the resume, pick the people who are most qualified or the ones that have worked for the right companies in the past. But a lot of the CEOs that we interviewed said, you know, what's more important is if the person has passion. Mm -hmm. that's what's going to be the right kind of employee for my company because those are the people who are going to show passion and it's going to attract people who want to do business with me.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think we're in a a world that's grabbing on for passion. They're looking for it. So many people are just lacking passion in their lives. Some people see it, like you're saying, it's infectious. People want to grab onto that. I I actually had a really interesting... um,
1: project that I've done over the last um, um, six months, Alex, I'd love to share it. Uh, I live in Boston, I'm 20 miles from the New Hampshire border. And of course, New Hampshire being the first primary state, I've actually gone to 22 New Hampshire candidate events. And oh, wow. I've, I've managed to ask 16 of the candidates on video what they're a fan of. Um, and it was a fascinating exercise because some of the candidates. Lit up and talk to me about what they're a fan of. Elizabeth. Um, f- so, for example, Pete Buttigieg says I'm I'm a fan of Gershwin. I love to not only listen to Gershwin but play Gershwin on the piano. That's human. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Kamala Harris says she's a fan of Bob Marley. Um, she's since dropped out of the election, but but you know what an interesting answer. Yeah. But, but some of the candidates, for example, um, Bernie Sanders, pivoted to a talking point. And so, you know, this is a really interesting concept around developing uh, fans and building a business is, can you show your true humanity? And in fact, it's even something that you can do if you're running for president.
0: That's really cool. Do you have those public anywhere where they could be Um, listened to or
1: watched? I'm going to be releasing um, uh, in mid-January, and I'll get you the link. Perfect. Um, I'll share it in the show notes. I'm creating a video that will have... Uh, that'll put all this together. I'm, I'm actually producing a mini documentary, about seven six to seven minutes, a mini documentary that puts it all together.
0: Very cool. Well, David, we didn't get a chance to get through all this book. And I'm gonna highly recommend everyone to pick it up because the other chapters we didn't talk about are incredible. And some of them are Reiko's that she wrote that are equally as good as yours, I feel. And I love that. Before we close out, can you kind of tie this together for us again, just kind of the, the big concept of fanocracy, how we're building this Army of of uh, marketers. How are we doing this?
1: Absolutely. So we dug into why do people become fans, and then how can companies use this idea to build business. And the thing that we really came away with two really important concepts, I believe, is number one: those of us who live a life with passion live a better life. You know, when you love something so deeply. You have friends who do the same thing. That's an amazing way to live your life. We also learned that the idea of tapping into fandom is not just for actors and athletes and musicians, which is sort of what we wondered going into this research project. It Mm -hmm. turns out that any company or person or, or organization or ideas can develop fans. It doesn't matter if it's a consumer brand or a B2B or a nonprofit or a commodity business or a doctor or a dentist, anybody can build fans. And that's, uh, that's something that I think is really powerful that came out of this research, that this idea of developing fans is, is for anybody.
0: Yeah, I love it. And as I just mentioned, but fans become your marketers and your sales team. When you really have fans, they share it, they talk about it, and that helps you out as well. Absolutely. Well, David, I really appreciate the time today. This was a great episode. I had a lot of fun talking about this book. Thank you so much for sharing today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your enthusiasm, Alex, your passion, Alex. I really appreciate it. David shared some serious wisdom with us about building fans around our businesses, products, and services. He's clearly spent a lot of time doing his research and figuring out how fandom really works. Each chapter that we covered today gave me a new perspective. That's why I picked those out. But I can tell you right now, the rest of the book is just as groundbreaking. So I highly encourage you to pick up a copy for yourself. In addition to what we talked about today, David produced a mini documentary that you should check out. You can watch it directly in the show notes for today's episode, or you can visit fanocracy.com. I hope that you're excited about unleashing the world's most powerful marketing force around your business after listening to this episode. David, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and being a guest on the Creating a Brand podcast. For show notes, visit creatingabrandpodcast.com. Thank you as always for listening, subscribing and leaving reviews. I'll be back with you next week.